Let's return in our study to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. And if you are visiting today, we are studying through the book of Hebrews and our habit here all 13 years that Christ Fellowship Bible Church has been around is is that we preach expositionally. And what expository preaching is, is it is expositing, exposing the meaning of the text and making that the main point of the sermon. Uh, expository preaching is important. That's what we do because God is the one who dictates what is to be said through his word. But we're also committed to consecutive expository preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, That way we just can't pick and choose the easy and the familiar and the fun and the easy to accept topics, but we teach the whole counsel of God and every doctrine as it comes in the word. So we're in chapter five of the book of Hebrews. And I must tell you that over the next three or four weeks, we are diving deep, listen, into the deep end of the theological pool of a warning passage. It is a warning passage, and you see that there in my, in my title in the bulletin. Warning, don't be spiritually dull of hearing. If you hear this sermon today and after the hour you think, man, that was tough. Just be thankful you didn't have to study it all week long. <laughs> this has been so good for my own heart to be in this, and I pray that God will enable me to preach it faithfully. One more time, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, now as we come to the reading and preaching of the word, we pray, O Lord, that we would receive it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in us who believe. Conform us into the image of Christ, for he alone deserves all worship. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not uncommon when I'm on a college campus sharing the gospel or perhaps at Pride Fest or at Mardi Gras, and maybe you can relate to this, where you meet someone and you're engaging them with the gospel and inevitably they say to you something along these lines, oh, I, I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church. I used to believe what you believe, maybe even with a tone of arrogance they might say that. But now they're on to other things. I mean, they've moved on to other things in their life, and they have deliberately, they have willfully turned away from Christ. But I want to be clear. This isn't backsliding. This isn't somebody who is having a, a bad season of spiritual growth, or maybe somebody who's, who, who is really struggling with some theological concepts. This is somebody who has willfully chosen to turn away from Christ and to turn away from his gospel to their own ways. The Bible has a word for that. And the word for that theologically is apostasy. Apostasy. It is, to be honest, one of the scariest topics in the whole Bible. It is scary. What is an apostate? An apostate is someone who once seemed to be a believer. It's somebody who seemed to be a believer, but they later willfully reject Christ. Again, we're not talking backsliding. We're not talking somebody who's in a spiritual lull. We're talking about somebody who has willfully chosen to turn their back on and reject Christ. Let me just read you a couple of examples of this in the Bible. 
in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Peter says, If after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things, and they are then overcome by these things, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would be better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we have another passage of apostasy. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Spirit of God explicitly says that in later times, some will apostatize or fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Look, I'll be the first to acknowledge, if we study the doctrine of apostasy rightly, this is a weighty, a sobering, a scary, and a frightful issue, because I don't want to be one, and neither do you. We don't want to be an apostate. And yet, that is the very issue, that is the very topic that the author of Hebrews is going to put right before our eyes for the rest of chapter 5 and most of chapter 6. But before we get there, let me remind you of where we are. It's been a number of weeks since we've been in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a magnificent letter, really a sermon, just penned and written down for us. And in this book of Hebrews, we learn the main predominant theme that Jesus is better. He's better. He is supreme. He is the Savior. He is the priest. So you must believe in him. You must hold fast to him. He is better and superior to angels. The Jewish people revered angels, and we see that in chapters 1 and 2. We see that Jesus is superior to Moses. We see that in chapter 3. We see that Jesus is superior to Israel in chapter 4. And, and Aaron and the whole Old Testament priesthood in chapters 4 and 5. Jesus is better. Anything that you could ever stake your eternity on, Jesus is better than all of it. He's better. And the implication for that, that Hebrews keeps bringing out for us, is because he is better, you and I need to hold on to him by faith. We need to cling to him. You must believe and trust in him alone for the salvation of your soul. Well, when we were together last looking at Hebrews, we were in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Remember, if you let your eye look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, the point of these verses is that Jesus is the perfect priest. In verses 1 to 4, he is compared and contrasted with all the Old Testament priests, with all the human priests of old. But then in verses 5 to 10, Jesus is better. He's the great high priest. He is the ultimate high priest. He's the eternal priest, a human priest. A suffering priest. He's the one who made a complete atonement for us. He is the source of our eternal salvation. This is Jesus. And so you and I must believe in him. You and I must trust in him. You and I must cling to him. The author of Hebrews is not interested in what you know. 
He wants your life to be marked by a clinging to Jesus by faith. That is genuine faith in Christ. And if you look at the end of chapter 5, verse 10, we see a little bit of a kind of a transition point. Chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus, as the source of eternal salvation, is designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 11, now concerning him, there is much to say. Concerning him, there is much to say. If you let your eye skip down to chapter 7, verse 1, the author is going to pick up his thought right here. Chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, and then there's a whole chapter on the man Melchizedek. But in chapters 5 and 6, it's like the author detours. It's like he pauses in mid-thought, and he interrupts himself, and he pauses. It's almost like you can imagine him stepping around from the pulpit, saying to the congregation whom he loves, now hold on. I'll get to Melchizedek, and we'll get there in a little bit, but there's something that I need to share with you. It's a warning. And it's a warning that comprises a danger of spiritual immaturity, a danger of immaturity, a danger of lack of growth. You know, the, the, the warning, there's a lot of theology here, and we're going to get into much of it in coming weeks, but it's very, it's very practical because the pastor of the church is warning them because he believes that there are many people who are hearing the word, but they're not doing the word. Wow, that's practical. And of course, there's a lot of scriptures on that, right? We, we are well aware of the next book, James. James chapter 1. Verse 22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James says, if you just come and hear the word preached, but it doesn't change your life, you're deceived. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 7. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount with the wise and the foolish builder. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, but acts on them, he is compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. But then later, everyone who hears these words of mine, but does not do them. He's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. On another occasion, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is preaching in Galilee. And in Luke chapter 11 and verse 28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Boy, that's practical. Uh, We're all here, and we all hear. The question is, that gives rise to the warning here is not, do you hear sermons? You do. The question is, how does it change your life? How does it change the way that you live and you think and you talk and you conduct yourself? 
So back to Hebrews 5. Let me give you a little overview of where we're going to go in the next few weeks of chapter 5 and then Hebrews 6. Here's what we're going to talk about around this theme of apostasy. In chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, where we are today, it's it's the author giving a diagnosis to the church. Here's what I'm observing among you. Here's what I'm observing. It's a diagnosis, and it's, it's a slippery path toward apostasy. He's not saying everybody's an apostate, but he's saying it begins here. Be careful. Next week, when we come to chapter 6, we're going to look at the warning, and it's one of the scariest warnings because the author is going to describe the eternal doom of the religious apostates. It's a warning. So today's the diagnosis. Next week is the warning in chapter 6. And then the end of the chapter, like a good preacher, he'll warn them. But he says, but now let me comfort you. He's going to comfort them in chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, and he's going to give them the promises of God and how faithful God is and how God is a sure hope that you can bank all of your trust and all of your confidence on him. So I'm going to preach this passage, but before I do, I need to affirm a couple of things for you. Number one. I want to affirm for you because the Bible affirms that a true believer can never lose his salvation. The Bible teaches that. I believe that. I hope you believe that. A true believer can never lose his salvation. Quite simply, if somebody is genuinely a Christian, he'll never become a non-Christian again. Once saved, always saved. Not because of us, but because of John 10, 28. No one can snatch my sheep, out of the hand of the Father and out of the hand of the Son. A second affirmation that I need to give you as we look into the section. Second, God is the one who saves a soul. And all those whom God saves, he keeps and he will carry all the way to heaven. Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justifies, glorifies. So God is the one who saves, and when he saves a person, guess what? He will carry you all the way to glory. A third affirmation, if a person deliberately falls away, that's that's the wrong word, falls away, if he turns away, if a person turns away and willfully rejects the gospel, it proves, listen, that they never were truly converted to begin with. No matter what kind of visible outward signs of religion they may have showed initially. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were never really of us to begin with. And then a fourth affirmation that I must give is that God in the Bible, I mean, not just Hebrews, but all through the Bible, God often gives warnings, why? To motivate perseverance. It's not as though you and I, if you're a Christian, you might think, oh no, I'm going to die and go to hell. It's not that. It's a motivation for perseverance so that we would stay the course of faith. So if, if I could sort of summarize what I'm going to say for the next little while, it's this. 
that the author wants you to make spiritual progress. He wants you to advance in your Christian life. And if you don't, if you don't, be warned. Be warned. So with that said, follow with me as I read our passage, Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11. Here's the word of the living God, Hebrews 5.11. Concerning him, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Again, before we launch into this, the point of Hebrews, what is the point? Jesus is better. Hold on to him. Don't drift. Don't leave. Don't depart. Don't abandon Christ, but consider him and hold fast to him. So the pastor, the pastor loves the church. He loves these people. And this deep love motivates him to give the congregation a very sobering warning. It's a warning against apostasy. It's a warning of, uh, against forsaking Christ. It is a solemn rebuke of their spiritual laziness, of their spiritual apathy. And the author is going to say, wake up. Don't be sluggish in your faith. He's going to call for maturity. He's going to call for growth. So let me give you my outline. I want to give you four simple reproofs, because that's what the author does. Four reproofs that the author gives to the congregation. Jot these down. They're real simple. Number one, you're dull. You're dull. Number two, you're neglectful. You're neglectful. Number three, you're unskilled. You're unskilled. And then number four, you're undiscerning. You're dull, you're neglectful, you're unskilled, and you're undiscerning. Let's begin where the author does in this warning in verse 11 with the first reproof that the pastor gives to the church. He says, you're dull. Verse 9 and 10, Jesus is the perfect priest. And he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He's designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, I love, as a preacher, I love verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. I always have a lot to say about these things. But, but the author gets it. About the priesthood of Jesus? There's so much to say. There's so much to tell you about Jesus as our high priest. I could tell you that he's the spotless lamb of God, that he is the high priest of God, that he became the sacrifice of God. He is righteous. He made a full atonement. His blood was shed that can wash all of your sin away. He's not from the line of Levi, but he's from the order of Melchizedek. And on and on he could go. There's much to say. But hold on. You're not ready for that right now. 
And it's almost as if he comes out to the side of the pulpit and he says to the people, the reason I can't do it is because you've become spiritually dull. Look in verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard for me to explain it, not because they're dumb, not that, not that at all. It's because you've become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing? Notice that verb, become. You have drifted into this state. You have digressed into this state. It's not that you've always been dull. You've allowed yourself to coast. You've allowed yourself to stray. You've allowed yourself to become dull. Dull? Dull of hearing, I have. Other English translations have, you've become a poor listener. Another English translation has, you're too lazy to understand. The Greek word means you're lazy. You're lazy. The Greek word means you're lazy in hearing the word. You're lazy. You've grown numb. You've grown callous. It's almost like you've allowed yourself to become so spiritually sluggish that when the word of God is preached, you're lazy in the hearing and the applying of it. It's not their intellectual ability. It's not your IQ. The point is the spiritual Apathy. You know, we, we might say, you become those who just zone out. It goes in one ear and out the other. You, you leave here unchanged. You, you have become lazy in the hearing of the word, the author says. You check out when you hear the word. You might be here. You might be in the congregation. You might hear it, but it doesn't affect you. So, I've been asking myself, I ask you, have you become spiritually dull of hearing the word? Have you you become a sermon hearer who lazily does not diligently apply the word? Is your spiritual life marked by laziness or diligence? Uh, Have you become a poor listener of the word? How, How does God's word affect you? How does it change you? How does it convict you? How does it change you when you leave? When you go home and go to bed Sunday night, when you wake up Monday morning all throughout the week, how does the feast from God and his word feed us and change us during the week? You know, I love that song that we often sing, Speak, O Lord. As we come to you to receive the food of your holy word, take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes. 
for your glory. The author says, there's so much that I want to tell you about Christ and his priesthood coming from the line of Melchizedek. There's so much I want to tell you, but you've become dull. Number two, if you're taking notes, you're neglectful. The author says you're neglectful in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You can almost modernize this in our vernacular today and say, hey, you've been around for years. You can almost hear the pastor saying some of you have been members for two, five, ten, twelve years. But you're not discipling anyone? You're not teaching anyone the word? Scratching his head saying, what's wrong with that? Verse 12, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. It's like you are not discipling or teaching anyone. You're just a taker, but you're not a teacher. You take, you take, you take, but you don't teach. Now, It's not that everybody's supposed to be a pastor. That's not the point. Not that everybody's supposed to be an elder or a deacon. That's not the point. But every Christian is called to be a teacher of the word in some capacity. But the author says, but now you need someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You ought to be discipling others. You've been around for a while. You ought to be teaching others. But you can almost hear him saying, but it's like you need the ABCs all over again. You need the fundamentals. You need, you need the elementary truths. You need the basic things all over again. In the Greek, it's actually a little bit bolder. The Greek has this idea. You, you become a high-maintenance toddler Christian. You're just a taker. By this time, you ought to be teaching others. You ought to be discipling others. You ought to be ministering the word in the lives of others. But you're like a high-maintenance toddler Christian. Okay, we get that, don't we? I mean, do toddlers do the dishes? Usually, no. Do toddlers make dinner for the family? Like real food, not in the play kitchen, but real food. No. Do toddlers do their laundry and fold it and put it all away? No. Do toddlers mow the lawn? I wish. Do toddlers vacuum and tidy up when you're hosting someone? No. But that's why we're here, to teach them, to help them grow. Toddlers are takers, so we teach them, we teach them, we teach them. But if somebody's 18 years old doing that, that's a problem. Or if they're 25 or 35 or 45 and they're just a taker, like a high-maintenance toddler, that's sinful. And it's the same spiritually. Think of it like this. It's very easy. It's very easy to just kind of become a taker, like a perpetual spiritual toddler. 
But you don't give. You don't serve. You don't disciple. You don't minister to others. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 15, and he tells them in verse 14 that I know that you are full of goodness and you're filled with all knowledge and you are able to admonish, you're able to teach, you're able to disciple, you're able to counsel one another. He's not writing to the elders, he's not writing to the deacons, he's writing to the church. You're able to admonish one another. Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. The Great Commission. This is the duty for every believer in Matthew chapter 28. Our Savior says at the very end of the gospel, In the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. I mean, that's all of our duty. We go. We see people baptized. And when they're baptized, we teach. We teach them to observe all that I command, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the author is saying, back to Hebrews 5, verse 12, by this time, you you ought to be teachers. You You ought to all be discipling. But it's like you become a high-maintenance spiritual toddler, and you just come, and you take, and you take, and you take the spiritual ABCs. Verse 12, you've come to need milk and not solid food. Convicting. So who are you teaching? Now, husbands, your first person you are to teach is your wife. If you have children in the home... Mother and father, you're to be teaching them. There's so many ways in which the interconnectedness, this this network of discipling relationships ought to occur within the church family. Praise the Lord for it. But are you teaching? I mean, can, can, can can you give a name of someone that you're ministering truth to? Hopefully a wife. Or children, or someone in the church family that you can meet with and disciple and open the word of God with. So the author says, yes, you're dull. There's much to say, but you become dull. And yes, you're neglectful. You've just become a, a taker. You're a consumer rather than a teacher. You're neglectful. In your outline, he continues, number three. He says to the church, you're unskilled, number three, you're unskilled. In verse 13, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Now, if you look in your Bible in verse 13, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to. Literally in the Greek, he's unskilled. He's inexperienced to the word of righteousness. What does that mean? It means you're, you're, you're incapable. You're unskilled. 
You're, you're the spiritual infant. You're that toddler. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, ponder this. Do you see that phrase? If you look in verse 13, the word of righteousness, if you partake only of milk, if, if you're neglectful, if you're a taker, if you're not a discipler, if you're dull in the faith, you're not accustomed. You're not skilled to the word of righteousness. There's two things here. Number one, ponder this. He's saying you're unskilled because you don't know the imputed righteousness of Christ. You don't know that positionally you are justified before God by simple faith alone in Christ and that God, the heavenly judge in the courtroom of heaven, has now pronounced you forgiven. He's declared you forgiven based upon the merit of Jesus Christ that is credited and downloaded to your account. You're, you're, you're unskilled in that. You, you, you don't know that? I mean, there, there's, there's a little bit of a rebuke here. He's saying to the church, you ought to know the gospel. You ought to know the word of righteousness. You ought to know that positionally Christ is our righteousness. You ought to know 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You ought to know what Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 9, that we do not have a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You, 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 just, you just drink milk, and you're unskilled. You're, you're not ready. You're unaware. You're inexperienced. You don't know the imputed righteousness of Christ. Hallelujah. Thank God for that gospel. But I think, second of all, there's another way that this is also seen. Not just the imputed righteousness, but the practical righteousness, the way of a righteous life. Because you're, you're just drinking milk, verse 13, you're, you're just a spiritual toddler, you're not growing in the faith, you don't know the practical word of righteousness, that you are to walk in holiness and you are to be pleasing to God. Like 1 John 2, 29, if you know that Christ is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 3, 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's like the author saying, church, congregation whom I love, you need to know this. The imputed righteousness and the practical righteousness. It's like he says, I love you, but you've got to grow up. It's like he's saying, I want you to mature in the faith. I want you to be acquainted with these things. I want you to be skilled in these things. Now, well, what does that look like? Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 3. How do you know if you're unskilled? How do you know? How do you know if, if you're in this category? Are you divisive? Are you unstable? 
Are you partisan? Are you asleep spiritually? Do you get cranky easily? Are you discontent as a way of life? Are you fretful? Are you self-absorbed? I get all of that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, your infants in Christ. Same idea. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not yet able to receive it. Even now you're not yet able because you're still fleshly. There's jealousy and strife among you, and you're not, are you not fleshly, and you're walking like mere men? Paul says the same thing. I want you to grow. I want you to grow. Now, hang with me for a couple minutes. I want to give you some really practical thoughts, okay? So the author loves the congregation. He fears that they're hearing the word, but they're not doing the word. He fears that they've become dull. He fears that they've become neglectful. He fears that they've become inexperienced. But ponder this. This is not only something for 2,000 years ago. This is relevant for us. Has there ever been a time in human history when the Bible has been more readily available? And generally speaking, people are biblically illiterate. I mean, we've got phone apps, we've got every conceivable translation, we've got text alerts, we've got Bible programs, we've got daily Bible verses, we've got text reminders, we've got Bible plans. I mean, we have so much to keep us busy and occupied, and yet, it's not so much having a Bible, it's reading it and studying it. And meeting with God. I believe that when God makes someone a Christian, he also, it goes with the deal. He makes them a studier of theology. He makes them a reader. I'm kind of proof of that. I wasn't much of a reader before the Lord saved me. Are you a reader? If not, then become one. Are you a studier of theology? If not, then become one. Are you a servant of others and a servant of the word? Then become one. Do you know hermeneutics? Then dive in and study if you don't. Do you hear and apply the word? God's call is for us to do it. Now, again, there are so many ways this can be applied, right? I mean, the Spirit of God uses His Word in our lives in many ways. But ponder this. We have the 3 o'clock worship service. You're here. But at 2 o'clock, we have our equipping hour or our family Bible hour. It's not just sort of like a Sunday school because we just do what tradition has done for a while. It's because we want to equip the people of God in good, solid doctrine and theology that will help you and guard you through life. Do you come? Wednesday night when we're studying the book of Psalms, it is the character of God and the knowledge of God that fortifies us in the difficult times in which we live. Do you come? Do do you read and study sound theology? 
Not, not, not a milk diet of like a Bible verse that is texted to you, maybe out of context, maybe not out of context. But do you do intensive, extensive, systematic study of sound theology? We have on the front pew there our church catechism. Do you have a copy of our church catechism and, and read it and study it in those footnotes that can go deeper in theology? Do you grow in precision and systematic theology and you think, I don't know where to start? Let me give you a few practical ways. If you don't know where to start in good theology, read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That would be a good place to start. After Pilgrim's Progress, I would encourage you Thomas Watson, A Godly Man's Picture. Wonderful book, easy to read. Third, Richard Mayhew's condensed theology book, Essential Christian Doctrine, is a must-read. Very, very good. Related to that, J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, is superb. Mark Dever's excellent must-read book for every Christian, so good for the local church, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We, we want to grow in our zeal. We want to grow in our sharing of the gospel each day. We want to grow in our mentoring. We want to grow in our discipling of other believers. We, we can start discipleship Bible studies. We can start a prayer meeting with others. We can pray for revival and meet with others to do so. We can make it a goal. Just as an idea, it's been helpful for me. Each year, I try to cycle through four genres of books. I try to read a book on systematic theology, and then a book on biblical counseling, and then a book on Christian living, and then a book on biographies. And it just kind of helps keep me across the whole spectrum of, of growing and learning and knowledge. This week, I've been sitting at an ice rink this week a number of times, and, and I've had a book, a biography, a wonderful biography on the successor to Hudson Taylor. God used it to encourage my heart in wonderful ways. Back to verse 13. But if you're just a spiritual toddler, and you just take, 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 like milk... You're not accustomed to the word. You you may not know the sound theology of the word of righteousness, and you may not be living out the practical righteousness that God wants you because, verse 13 ends, you're just an infant. You're just a taker. You become unskilled. Fourth, if you're taking notes... The author said to the congregation, you're dull. Number two, you're neglectful. Number three, you're unskilled. And then finally, here in verse 14, number four, you're undiscerning. You're undiscerning. You know, my my job, in part, as a pastor is to study to show myself approved, rightly handling the word of God. My job is to dig into the meat of the word so that I can feed you. I don't want to give you cotton candy, nor do you want cotton candy. You want the meat of the word. You say, give me Christ. Give me the theology. Give me the doctrine. Give me the whole counsel of scripture. That's my job, to feed you, to nourish you, to grow you, so that your joy in Christ would intensify. Verse 14, but solid food... I mean, you can almost hear the pastor say, yeah, the the solid food, it's for the mature. 
implication, you're not the mature. Because of practice, verse 14, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Every sense, all facets of Christian life, we want to discern good and evil. And that key word is the word train. They have their senses trained. It's an athletic term that is used for sweat, hard work. Okay, so if you were training for the Olympics, if you're training for a big competition, if you're training for a a marathon, you're going to put forth hard work, you're going to put forth daily effort, you're going to have a strict regimen, you're going to have forming habits that are carefully followed, you're going to have the right diet, you're going to have self-discipline, all these things to become stronger and better in your training. It's like the author says, that's what solid food does. It trains you, but it's hard work. It's hard work. And all of our senses, sight, touch, smell, taste, hearing, they all need to be trained and working hard. We want to grow in discernment. But here's where this verse is so practical. Without the training and without the growth, your left, listen, undiscerning. You're left undiscerning. And if you're immature, I mean, if you just stay like a toddler, high-maintenance Christian, then you can't distinguish right from wrong. Parents, have you ever heard your kids in your car? Or maybe at home, or maybe in their beds, they're talking to each other, and they say, you know, if I were a parent, I would do things this way. If I had a million dollars, I would do this. If if I had a vacation and all the money that I could do, I would go here and do this. And you're thinking, you're thinking, oh man, you know, what have I taught them? You know, the things that they're saying is lacking discernment. It's like that spiritually. It's like that spiritually. That, that if we are not good listeners to the word of God, if, 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 if I'm a selfish hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, and I'm not maturing, then I become susceptible to deception. Like Ephesians 4. God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. And then he goes on to say to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children. Don't be children anymore, he says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Discernment is like, it's like the theological grid. It's like theological glasses through which we make judgments of every circumstance and issue of life. Maybe an illustration of a cardiologist or a surgeon might be helpful. You know, if you go to the doctor and you go to a a surgeon and and they say, well, here's what needs to be done. And you say, well, okay, but I want to hear some of your credentials and what you've done before. And if every step along the way, that cardiologist says, okay, I have to go back to my textbooks and back to my lecture and read everything to catch up. But that guy's not fit. 
But over time, he becomes more skilled. Over time, his training and his learning and his studies, and he develops all these years of of insight and wisdom and knowledge and skill in that field, and it helps him make wise and helpful decisions in the moment. That's what we need spiritually. We need that maturity. We need that growth. We need that discernment. This section in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, it's it's a warning. It's almost like the pastor says, church, here's the diagnosis of what I see. You become dull. He's not saying that everybody's an apostate. He's not saying that. But the slippery path to apostasy can begin here. Be on guard. Be on guard. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Here we are at the start of another year, 2024. Think of 2023, maybe 2022. Ask yourself, is there a difference in my spiritual life now? As I reflect on where I was a year or two ago. In the last three to five years, as I've been walking with the Lord and serving in the church, is there a noticeable difference in my walk with Christ now? Can you pinpoint in your spiritual life two two to four ways that you are moving closer to God? when you reflect on the last five years of your life. What what are you reading? What, What do you listen to? What do you watch? What do you desire in your heart? Maybe another question, how am I actively serving my church? How am I ministering? How am I teaching? How am I discipling? How am I giving counsel? How are, uh, am I as an older woman, you might say, coming alongside of the younger women, Titus 2, 3 to 5, and teaching them? How are the older men coming alongside of the younger men? How are we teaching our children? How do you spend your free time? What do you do with your leisure time? Do you study God's word daily? You say, man, that just sounds so harsh. But as I say almost every week when I'm street preaching, it's loving to warn. Just ask any parent. It's loving to warn. And what does the author want? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what the author wants. So we're going to get here next week, but here's what he's looking for. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That's what he wants. He wants you to press on to maturity. So if you're a new believer here, is it bad to be a baby Christian? No. But don't stay there forever. Is it bad to be a toddler? No, but don't stay that way forever. 
He wants you to press on to maturity. And what we're going to see as we continue to look in the book of Hebrews, church family, even though this is a tough section and it's convicting, we're all there. You know, the goal is not, here's 25 things you need to do to try to make yourself better. The goal that Hebrews is going to keep presenting before our eyes, look at the great high priest. And if you see him rightly, and if you will love him appropriately, and if you obey him faithfully, it will be a joy for you. Why? Because you'll say, he died for me. And he made a full atonement for me. And I am now able to go to heaven by the good works of another that qualifies me. That his blood has washed all of my sin away. The goal of growth is not the long list of here's the things you need to do in your own ability and strength. Here's the beloved Savior. The great high priest. Look to him. Love him. Worship him. We're going to even do that as we take communion here in a moment. Church family, he is our champion. He is our captain. He is our example. He is the one that we behold. He is the one that we look at. He is the one who enables our growth by his grace. Before I close, I would beg, because if there was ever an easy application, it's right here. Everyone is a hearer of the word. You're here. But don't become dull. Don't become dull. Don't be neglectful. Don't be unskilled. Don't be undiscerning. Maybe in your notes you can jot down a few ways. You can say, by God's grace and with his help, and by the spirit of God's enablement, I want to grow in these couple of areas and make it a matter of prayer. The Lord will help you. John Flavel, I'll close with this. John Flavel rightly said, there is no doctrine There is no doctrine that is more excellent in and of itself and more necessary to be preached and studied than the doctrine of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you want to read a book to help theologically on that, Paul Washer has a great new one called The Preeminent Christ. It's all about that very topic. There is no topic, there is no doctrine, there is nothing that you can fill your mind and your heart with that is worth more and more engaging and more needful than studying the glory of Christ. So, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have shown us How important it is, O Lord, to receive the warnings from a loving God. You love us. The author of Hebrews loved the congregation. He wants growth. He wants us to press on to maturity. 
Oh, Lord, help us. And, oh, Lord, we should ask that you would please forgive us. Forgive us, O Lord, where we have been lazy, where we have not applied the word, where we have not discipled others. We, we sometimes can become spiritual high-maintenance toddlers. O Lord, forgive us. Help us to vigilantly, aggressively pursue Christ with our all. As we sing... And then as we take the Lord's Supper in a time of communion, may we fellowship, O Lord, with one another. May we remind one another in this deliberate act of of partaking of Christ by faith in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup that all of our salvation and all of our righteousness and all of our security is found in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.